pastors Michael and Brenda Brunzo welcome you and thank you for listening to the following message. This message was recorded during a regular service at Faith Fellowship Church. The Bible tells us in Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So we believe this message will encourage and strengthen you in your daily walk of faith. God bless you as you listen. says, Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. So I guess if you read 1 and 2 Peter, you'll be stimulated to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Above all, Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is the coming he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. And by these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And verse 8, pay close attention to verse 8. It says, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. With the Lord, a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. Verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Why hasn't the Lord come yet? Verse 9 tells us, He's patient. He wants everybody that we can possibly get saved and into the kingdom of God. He's given us as much time as he can possibly give us, but time is running out. In verse 10, I want to read in the New Living Translation. He says, but the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise, and the very elements themselves will disappear in fire, and the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. Now, I know a lot of people believe that the earth is going to end with fire. And it's going to be a nuclear war and the earth is going to be destroyed by fire. But that's not what the scriptures say. The earth is not going to be destroyed. It's, uh, the elements are going to be burned up. The heavens are going to burn. And not the stellar heavens, but the heavens above our head, the air that we breathe, it's going to burn up, and basically what it's going to do is burn everything up that's of a sinful nature, 
nature, every virus, every bacteria, it's going to be a purifying fire that purifies the air, the atmosphere, the heavens over our head, and it's going to do the same thing on the earth. Everything of a sinful nature is going to be burned up, and the earth is going to be renewed for a second time. But I want you to notice the day of the Lord. It's not just one 24-hour day. It marks the beginning of a period of time during the latter part of the tribulation period, and it will be the most concentrated of trials and tests and pain and suffering and mass death to mankind that the world has ever seen. Jesus himself called it great tribulation. So great that if God didn't put a time limit on it, there would be no survivors. And if you'd like to study that further, we don't have time today, but you can go to the 18th chapter of Revelation and start with the opening of the sixth seal. That'll give you an idea of what the, the day of the Lord is going to be like. But this phrase, the day of the Lord, occurs 31 times in the King James Bible. 26 times in the Old Testament and five times in the New Testament. So it's obviously important to God that we have some understanding of this day of the Lord. At the end of the day of the Lord, I'm just going to give you a quick synopsis. This is not my teaching, but it's some good background for you. So you'll better understand the teaching when we get to it. But at the end of the day of the Lord, Jesus will return to the battle of Armageddon. This will be his second coming. He'll actually touch down on Mount Olive. The, the, he'll touch down with all his power and glory, and the mountain will split in two and create a great valley in between the two. And there he will defeat the Antichrist and his armies with the brightness of his coming, the Bible says. And I believe Zechariah described it as their flesh just melting off of their skeleton and them dropping dead. The Antichrist and the false prophet are going to be tossed into the lake of fire forever. And then an angel was sent from heaven, probably Michael the archangel, the, the, the head of the warring angels. And he will bound, bind Satan with a great chain and toss him into the bottomless pit where he will remain for a thousand years. And then Jesus will establish his kingdom here on the earth. He will sit on the flesh throne of his father David. Jesus is king in both worlds, the spiritual realm and the earthly realm. He has a right to both thrones because he's in the lineage of David. Uh, he'll establish his kingdom right here on the earth where he will rule and reign for a thousand years and we will rule and reign with him. At the end of the thousand years, Satan will be loose for one more attempt to defeat Christ. There will still, even though Christ rules himself on the earth from Jerusalem, sitting on the throne of David, there will still be rebellion in the world. There will still be sin in the world. But it will be dealt with swiftly, so it will be at a minimum. But there will still be that rebellion and that sin in the hearts of men. And so Satan will be loose after a thousand years to tempt those men, get them together, and make one more run at Christ where he will be defeated once again. And this time he will be cast into the lake of fire where he will join the Antichrist and the false prophet. I know nobody wants to go to hell. 
Nobody has to go to hell. Nobody should go to hell. There's only one thing to send you to hell, and that's rejection of Jesus Christ. There is no sin that you can think of, past, present, or future, that will send you to hell. The only thing that will send you to hell is when you have an opportunity to accept Jesus Christ and you reject him. That will send you to hell. But we don't want to go there, if not for anything else, the fire. It's going to be hot in hell. But there's going to be a ticked off devil, a ticked off false prophet, and a ticked off antichrist down there too. And they will make you miserable. Trust me. You don't want to go there. Amen? After all the sin and rebellion has been put down once and for all, and it's been purged out of the hearts of men, because there'll be no more wicked men left on the earth after this last rebellion, there will be what's called the great white throne judgment. God himself will sit upon that throne. We face the judgment seat of Christ, but there will be no believer that will stand before the white throne judgment. That is for the wicked that rejected Christ. Not the ones that never heard about Christ, never had an opportunity. God is fair. God is just. He will send nobody to hell that doesn't deserve to go there. But all the, the wicked dead will stand before that white throne judgment. Uh, those that rejected Christ, uh, they will be raised from the dead. Now, our dead, the, the, those that died in Christ, will be raised at the rapture. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, then we which are uh, remain and alive will be raised up together with them and will meet the Lord in the air. That's for the Christian. That's for the believer. But the wicked dead do not rise at that time. They wait another thousand years and they rise for the white throne judgment. But they've already been judged. God is just going to bring them to the white throne judgment and show them that they deserve to go to hell. And nobody will leave the white throne without knowing that their judgment was just and they deserve the punishment that they're about to get. Amen. Nobody. But then they will be sentenced to the lake of fire along with the devil and the false prophet and the antichrist. After the great white throne judgment takes place, the heavens and earth will be renovated, yet so as by fire. There will be that purifying fire that goes through the atmosphere. In the King James, it talks about the heavens and the earth passing away. But anytime you see the word pass away in the Bible, it never means a cessation to exist. It just means a passing from one uh, state to another. It's just like dying. You don't cease to exist. You pass from this life to the next life. It's just a passing away. And that's what's going to happen to the, uh, the earth. And the King James says that it's going to happen with a terrible noise. And it's, uh, it comes from a Greek word that means like a swoosh. It's going to go swoosh in the air, the heavens over our head, the air, and everything of a sinful nature on the earth is going to be burned up and purified. Amen. And we're going to be left with a pure earth. No more COVID-19 or 17 or 21 or any of that other stuff. Burned up once and for all. 
Hallelujah. Then the new Jerusalem will descend from heaven and it will hover over Israel. That city is so big and beautiful, there's no way it could touch earth. It can't touch earth. Earth will go out of orbit. But it will, I mean, it's 1,500 miles square. That means it goes from uh, Mexico to the top of Canada and from the East Coast almost all the way to the West Coast. It will descend from heaven and it will hover over Jerusalem. And that's when God will dwell with us. And we won't need a sun, the sun, S-U-N, because all the light we ever need will come from that city, come from God. Hallelujah. And then eternity will begin. So, now that we have a little understanding about the day of the Lord, I want to talk to you about how close we are to the day of the Lord and the return of Jesus Christ at his second coming. In other words, how does it fit on God's prophetic timetable? Uh, but before we begin, I want to draw begin. I want to draw your attention once again to verse eight, where Peter said that a day, one day, is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. And he told us he didn't want us to be ignorant of this. He wants us to understand this. It's a crucial key to unlocking mysteries and revelation when it comes to prophetic end time events. We need this key to understand them. And what we need to understand that is in certain places of scripture, not all, a day represents a thousand year period or a, a thousand year span of time. But when it's interpreted like that, like we're gonna do today, we need to make sure that it fits prophetically because if it doesn't fit prophetically, then it's just a 24-hour day. In Isaiah chapter 41, verses 21 and 22, God says, Produce your cause, saith the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, saith the king of Jacob, or the king of Israel. Let them bring them forth and show us what shall happen, the future, and let them show the former things, the past, what they be, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them, or declare us things for to come. In other words, God challenged the idols that Israel was worshiping, and he said, if your idols are really gods as you claim, then let them take the things that are now and the things that are past, and through those things, show us the end of the whole matter. Uh, in other words, show us the future by what we see now and what we've seen in the past. And God is the only one that can do that. He is the only one that can accurately predict the future. There is no horoscope that can do that. There is no uh, Ouija board. There is no uh, tarot cards. There's no uh, astrologers. There's nobody you can call on the phone that can do that. Only God can do that. Amen. Amen. So he's the only one. And he's the only one that can show us the end from the beginning. Types and shadows. God did it through types and shadows. And he shows us future events 
And these type and shadows are throughout the entire Old Testament. They are actual events that took place, but through the law of double reference, they can point to prophetic future events that have yet to come to pass. Let me give you an illustration. One of the things we need to know about shadows is that something tangible, something real, has to cast a shadow. A spirit can't cast a shadow. It has to be something that is uh, solid matter, uh, something that is real and tangible. That's the only way to cast a shadow. So here's an illustration. If I was to walk towards a corner on a sunny day with the sun to my back, and you were coming from around the other side of the corner, you would see my shadow. My shadow would appear to you, and shortly afterwards, I would appear behind my shadow. So that is a future event. Uh, that shadow and a type of, it, uh, that's a shadow and a type of things to come. It was my shadow, but it was a type of what was to come after the shadow, and that was me, the tangible, touchable part, the handsome part of the shadow. Amen. Uh, let me see here. God gave us all kinds of types and shadows that would show us the future. The past event... The thing that is casting the shadow is something that actually took place. But by the law of double reference can become a prophetic word pointing to a future event. My shadow coming around that corner pointed to a future event. And that future event was me, the physical thing, the real thing, coming around the corner after the shadow. If the shadow is in front, it shows a future event. If it's behind, it shows a past event. So if the sun was in my face, then you wouldn't have seen my shadow before you seen me. But right after I passed by, you would have seen my shadow following, showing you a past event. The past event was me having passed the corner. I hope you can understand this. It's really important. Let me give you one more example. Isaiah 53, 4 and 5, it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All right, that's a shadow that's in front. It's showing a future event. Because Jesus didn't come until about 800 years after that. So Isaiah cast a shadow for a future event. But 800 years later in the future, that's when Christ came. He received those stripes, physically received those stripes, died on the cross for our forgiveness and our healing. And then 1 Peter 2.24 says, Who is own self for our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins, should live under righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. Now the shadow is behind. It's shown a past event. You were healed. Isaiah showed a future event. The shadow was in front. 1 Peter 2.24 shows a past event. The shadow was behind. But anyway, a lot of things happened to Israel, which is the substance or the shadow or the type of what's to come. 
and it pointed to future events as well. And God reaffirms this again through the prophet Isaiah in, in Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. He says, remember the former things of old, the past, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. And then verse 10, he says, remember the former things of old again, the past, declaring the end, the future, from the beginning and from ancient times, the things that are not yet to come, are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. But the main thing to remember is God has shown us the end from the beginning, the future from the past. This ain't too fast for you, is it? I can think of it. I've pondered over this. I've meditated on it. I wrote it and rewrote it and tried to find scriptures and, and different translations that would bring it out more clear and make it easier to understand. Because it is pretty uh, heavy or it can get pretty heavy. But it's like an architectural drawing of the 6,000 year period that God will deal with mankind prior to the transition into the millennial reign of Christ right after the tribulation period. And I say that because in the book of Genesis, and Genesis actually means the book of beginnings. God showed us a time period from the creation of man to the end of the last millennium, and that's a span of 7,000 years. And he showed it to us from the beginning. Uh, and remember this, the Bible is not a record of the existence of the world. The world is millions, billions of years old. The Bible is a record of the existence of humanity. And it began with the creation of Adam almost 6,000 years ago. Uh, so in what's called the Genesis account, God labored six 24-hour days. And we know that because a thousand year day would not fit here prophetically. So we know it's 24 hour days, recreating the existing heavens and earth and creating man in his own image and likeness. And then he rested on the seventh day. He made that clear that he rested on the seventh day. So the scriptures lead us to believe that God gave man a lease on the earth for 6,000 years and man, Adam, subleased it to the devil. He subleased the earth to the devil. So the devil has a lease on earth, but it's subleased. It has a time limit on it. And his time is running out. So in the first chapter of Genesis, holding true to what Isaiah said, God spoke the end from the beginning. The six days represent 6,000 years of human history. One day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. And this fits prophetically and you'll see why as we progress in our teaching. In that 6,000 year period, God will finish his work with man concerning the first harvest of the earth. The husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience for it, James said, or Peter said basically the same thing. God's given us as much time as he can because he wants more fruit. And this is going to be the first harvest of the righteous from the earth 
which includes everyone that has accepted Christ from Adam to the time of the rapture, all of those will be the first fruits. All of those will be the first harvest of the earth. In Hebrews 4, 3, 3 through 5, it says, For we which have believed do enter into rest. As he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. And in this place again, what place? The seventh day, if they shall enter into my rest. So this indicates that the seventh day in the Genesis account represents the seventh millennium, the seventh uh, thousand year span of time when Christ will reign here on the earth and we'll reign with him. That will be a day of rest. A thousand years with the Lord is as a day, a day is as a thousand years. So that will be a thousand years of rest, the millennial reign. And uh, it will be a rest for God's people because the Antichrist is gone, the false prophet is gone, they're in the lake of fire forever, they ain't coming back, and the devil is bound in the bottomless pit. Therefore, there'll be no temptation, no test, no trials. Your faith won't even be challenged. That would be a time of rest. See, we don't get that kind of rest here. We can rest in Christ, and we can rest in God, but that kind of rest where we're never challenged won't happen until then. So what it's saying here is that 6,000 years of labor, 1,000 years of rest, and it equals 7,000 years, the seven days of creation. Six days of creation, seventh day of rest, the Sabbath. Now, there's over 70 signs that show that we are close to the return of Jesus. But this morning, I want to show you something that's really interesting concerning this Genesis account, the 7,000 years in the Genesis account. Uh, and the reason I mention there's 70 signs to point to the return of the Lord and the day of the Lord is because there are zero signs that point to the rapture. So God gives us signs to give us an idea of what season we're in. And it has, this has to do with the story Jesus told about a good Samaritan. Y'all know that story? It's in Luke chapter 10. If you want to turn there, you can, but I'm just going to paraphrase it for you. The thing that prom prompted Jesus to tell this story of the good Samaritan is because a lawyer asked him this question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, we know that answer. There's nothing you can do except, except to accept Jesus Christ. That's how you inherit eternal life. So Jesus asked the lawyer. I love it when the Lord answers a question with a question. He says, what's written in the law? And the reason he said that is because you're a lawyer. You study the law. And, and the law that he studied was the scripture. So he says, what's written in the law? And the lawyer answered him promptly and said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. He knew the answer. But 
But he asked the redundant question anyway. And Jesus told him, you got that right. Now go and be a doer of the word and do it. He says, go love your neighbor. But the lawyer wanted to be justified because Jesus just put him down in a nice way. He says, who is my neighbor? So Jesus tells him this story about the Good Samaritan. Some people think it's a parable, but Jesus said a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. So Jesus don't say anything about a certain person unless it's a certain person. So it's not a parable. It's not an allegory. It's, not a, it, it, it's an actual event that took place, and Jesus is telling the story of it. A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and a band of thieves assaulted him and robbed him, leaving him wounded and half dead on the side of the road. Shortly thereafter, a priest came down that way, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite came by and looked on him, and then crossed over to the other side and walked away. So these two men represent religion and the law. The priest represented religion, and the Levite represented the law because it was the Levitical law that the religious people lived by. And so, under the law, if you touched a man that had an issue like a bleeding or some, some, something oozing out of his body, out of a sore or something like that, if you touched him, you would be defiled. But God provided a way to be cleansed. There was a ceremonial cleansing that could take place after that. But the priest and the Levite were too lazy to do that. And they would rather let the man die than them have to go through the inconvenience of helping him and then having to go through the ceremonial cleansing or the ritual to be cleansed again so they could continue to minister. So under the rich rituals uh, or, or the pretense of avoiding legal pollution, they just look and pass by. If you remember, Jesus rebuked the religious leaders in Matthew chapter 23, where he called them hypocrites. He said, you hypocrites, you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin. In other words, you obey the law, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, which are judgment, mercy, and faith. These are what you should have done. And then he said, and not leave the other undone. In other words, he said, you should obey the law, pay your tithes, but you should give judgment, mercy, and faith more weight. And the King James says, you forget the weightier matters of the law. In other words, uh, judgment, mercy, and faith are more important than paying the tithe. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thing is stuck. Hang on a minute. I'll be right back. But anyway, Jesus is saying that rather than obey the law, you should have judgment, mercy, and faith. But when you obey the law, it keeps you from 
from showing that mercy, keeps you from helping people the way that you should help them. All right, I'm back. Hallelujah. There's not going to be any sound systems in heaven or iPads. But this is, I'm relying a lot on these notes because this is a line by line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little type teaching. And I have to follow a line of thought, otherwise I'm just going to confuse everybody, including myself. But what Jesus did through this story was show the superiority of the gospel which he was preaching over the law and teaching us that we should reject any religion or law that would keep us from performing an act of mercy or from helping somebody. If there's a religion or a law or, or anything like that that would keep you from uh, showing mercy and compassion and helping somebody, then you should reject the law. That's what Jesus is saying. Because the, the mercy is greater than the law. So this good Samaritan came by, and when he saw him, he had mercy on him and went to him. He didn't go on the other side. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, which was the modern medicine of that day. The oil would soothe the wound, of course, and keep it soft and pliable, keep it from drying out, and the wine would disinfect the wound. That was the medication of that day. And then he set him on his own beast, maybe a donkey or an ox or something, and brought him to an inn and took care of him there. And when he departed the next day, he took out two pence or two pennies or two denarii, depending on what translation you read, and gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, take care of him, and if it costs you more than the two pence, the two pennies, the two denarii, I'll pay you when I return. So Jesus taught the lawyer and you and I that the one who shows mercy is the one who truly loves his neighbor. Now there's a lot to learn from this story, but uh, especially when you apply some symbolism, it becomes more clear and it makes more sense concerning prophetical end time events. Now watch this. The thieves represented Satan and sin. The man robbed and beaten represents us. We were sinners beaten and left for dead on the side of the road of life by Satan and sin. The priest and the Levite representing religion and the law which in no way can save a sinner, looked and passed by on the other side. The Good Samaritan represents Jesus Christ, the only one who could help, the only one who could save a soul. The end represents the kingdom of God and the church, where Jesus gathers his people to care for one another. Now, let's look closely at the two pence, because here's the key here. The Good Samaritan gave the innkeeper two pence, two penny or two denarii, to care for the man until he returned. So this two pence should be enough until I return. 
Uh, we know the, the Samaritan represents Jesus, so what does the two pence represent? In Jesus' parable about the laborers that went into the vineyard, he said, The kingdom of heaven is like a man which went out early in the morning to hire laborers to work in his vineyard. They agreed to work for a penny, a pence, a denarii, a penny a day, and then he sent them into his vineyard. The vineyard is the earth, and it belongs to God. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So the vineyard is the earth that belongs to God. The laborers in that vineyard are God's church on earth. The wage of a penny, a pence, or a denarii is for a day's labor, a day's work. And that's what God offered, and that's what the laborers, the church, agreed to. The Good Samaritan, Jesus, gave the innkeeper, the church, two pence, two pennies, until he was to return. So if one pence was for one day's work, then two pence would be enough for two days' work. So Jesus gave him enough for two days' work until he returns. So Jesus has given the church two pence the wage for two days work until he returns and remember the key to unlocking end time events is that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years a thousand years is as a day so the two days represents two thousand years Jesus gave the church two thousand years that's the dispensation of the church that's the church age so can you see the symbolism in this the Samaritan Jesus gives 2,000 years to the innkeeper, the church, and then he said, this should be enough until I return. In other words, for all the things that you must get done, for all the things that you must labor to do, I'm giving you 2,000 years to do it. 2,000 years to get this harvest in. 2,000 years for the first harvest of souls, the precious fruit of the earth. And then I'll return. So when did Jesus go back to heaven? Just under 2,000 years ago. So what's that mean? It means he's getting ready to return and settle up with the church. He's getting ready to return and see how well the church did. And this all ties in with the 6,000 year timeline in the Genesis account. Anytime we teach on end time events and the return of Christ, and you know this from my past teachings, we never make predictions concerning the exact dates and times. We can't do that. Jesus said, but of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only, which indicates to me that Jesus doesn't even know it. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. He's probably so close to coming back now, he's standing. But he won't make a move until the Father tells him. Go get your church, son. Then he'll go. But Jesus did tell us in Matthew chapter 24, and this is important. In other places, he told us to watch for signs. Watch for seasons to tell when his return is drawing near. 
We may not be able to tell the exact date or hour, but we should know the season yes. that he's coming in. Yes. We can know the day of the Lord and Christ's return is at the door. That's how close it is. And I need to tell you this, and you may not agree with it, but here's a number of clues in the scripture. I know some people will think this teaching is, uh, this is hocus pocus stuff. You can twist the word and make it say anything you want. That's just a big coincidence about this 2,000 years and, the, and the, the, this about the Samaritan, the religion. There are no coincidences in the Bible. But you may not agree with this, but here's a number of clues given in the scriptures that points to Christ returning in or around the year 2030, give or take a few years. Our calendar is way off the wall. I mean, this is 2022. He should have returned 22 years ago, according to the Gregorian calendar that come from Pope Gregory a couple hundred years ago. It's an inaccurate calendar. Let me give you some more clues. For example, in John 440, Jesus stayed with the Samaritan woman a prophetic type of the church for two days. After two days, he went forth from there. It's again points to 2,000 years of the church age. In John 11:6, Jesus remained two days after hearing Lazarus was sick before crossing the Jordan to raise him from the dead. He then stayed two days longer in the place. is to turn Israel's heart back to the real Christ. And then I, Hosea said, he will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day. After two days, he'll revive us. He'll raise us up on the third day. At the end of the second day of John 1, Jesus tells us of his coming on the clouds. He said, you will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. So if the church age is prophesied to last 2,000 years, which it is, most scholars calculate to have begun in 30 AD, the time of Jesus' resurrection and the birth of the church, then the return of Christ will be real close to the year 2030, give or take a few years because of the inaccuracy of most calendars. Ours is way off. It's way inaccurate. You can't rely on it for anything. We move holidays towards weekends so we can have a long weekend. It's just a messed up calendar. 
But mankind has been given seven days or 7,000 years from Adam until the completion of human history on the white throne judgment day, the end of, uh, of the seventh millennium, right before Jerusalem descends from heaven and we go into eternity. From Adam to Abraham was 2,000 years. From Abraham to Christ was 2,000 years. The Messianic age, when Christ rules on the earth, is a Sabbath day of 1,000 years. So that only leaves, out of the 7,000 years, that only leaves 2,000 years, and that's for the church. That's the age we're living in now, the church age. But it's coming rapidly to a close. Yeah. Jesus said plainly in Matthew 24, 33, he says, So likewise, ye, when you see all these things in time events, the signs and the seasons, he says, know that it is near even at the doors. We're to know this. Yes. Remember Peter said uh, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Well, we don't live in the night. We're children of light. We live in the light. It's going to sneak up on those that are living in darkness, those that don't know Jesus Christ, those even that are sleeping in the church. It's going to sneak up on them, but it's not going to sneak up on us because we have the light. Amen? And like I said, there are over 70 signs that point to the second coming of Christ, but there isn't any signs, zero signs that point to the rapture of the church. So what's that got to do with anything? I'm wrapping it up now. I thought I'd go longer, but I'm going to get done on time. Hallelujah. And I know some of you are probably thinking 2030, give or take a few years, is still a long ways off from now. So I'm not going to sweat it just yet. I've got plenty of time. But just for argument's sake, let's say that the calendar of the Jews, which is probably the most accurate calendar on the earth it's remarkably accurate because the Jews were commanded by God to make sure that all the festivals are celebrated in their proper seasons the Torah says guard the month of spring and make then the Passover offering meaning God wants Passover to always be in the spring of the year our calendar moves in 11 days every year. So it winds up in the fall, it winds up in the winter, it winds up back in the spring, it winds up back in summer. It's just moving all over the place. And we don't care. We ain't changing our calendar for no religious holiday. So the calendar, the Jewish calendar, is meticulously and constantly adjusted according to the seasons. Our calendar is based on a lunar year, but the Jewish calendar is, is based on a lunar and solar year. And it's a perpetual calendar that they keep adjusting to keep the festivals or the feasts of the Lord in the proper seasons. They are also perpetual. So we would move the, the festival to Friday so we could have a four-day weekend. The Jews won't do that. They'll keep it in the season. If no adjustment is made, like I said, Passover would occur 11 days earlier each year, eventually drifting into winter, then fall, and summer, and spring again. 
And this cannot be allowed to happen because God said to guard the month of spring and make sure that the Passover offering is always in the spring. It must always be in the spring. So something has to be adjusted. Something has to move. And since the feasts are perpetual, uh, and it's a long story and I'm not going to get into it, uh, they made the calendar also perpetual. It's constantly moving and adjusting to keep the festivals that God commanded them to keep in certain times of the years. I should mention this one other thing. The Jewish year always starts with Rosh Hashanah. That's their Jewish New Year. It means the head of the year, which started on the day that Adam was created. So they count years from the creation of Adam till now, so many years. That's how they keep track of it. So let's say, for argument's sake, that the Jewish calendar, the one, Jew, the one Jesus uses, is accurate. And let's say his second coming will be in the year 2030, just for argument's sake. And, and there may be enough, in, I mean, we're talking 6,000 years of history, so the Jews might even be off two or three years. I don't know. But let's say his second coming will be in the year 2030. That's, you know, that sounds like seven years from now, eight years from now. Man, I got plenty of time. But now, even though the rapture is signless, if we know the time of the second coming, we back up seven years for the rapture, that's next year. That's 2023. Now, hey, we might have another few years. We might not have uh, even till 2030, depending on the accuracy of the Jewish calendar. And I believe it to be pretty accurate. Because uh, like I said, it's based on the Bible. It's based on the, the festivals and stuff. And uh, when Jesus does come back, we won't know the day or hour, but he is coming back on the Feast of Trumpets for a number of different reasons that we won't get into today. But for the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God and the dead of Christ will rise first. That's talking about the rapture. So it's going to come on the Feast of Trumpets because of uh, the way that the feast fell with the uh, Feast of First Fruits, which is Resurrection Sunday, uh, and the, the waving of the loaves, which is the bread of life. And, and all these things come together. These feasts are in a position for a reason. And that's why God said to make sure that you start with Passover and it always appears in the spring. That's the pivot point. Because if Passover always appears in the spring, then all the other feasts will appear in their season and time. And that time of Jesus' return is going to be the Feast of Trumpets. Now you say, well, you said you can't predict the exact time, the day and hour. Well... Feast of Trumpet lasts several days. I could guess which day he comes, but that wouldn't be a prediction. No man knows the day or hour. Again, you know, we could pretend we're in Vegas and guess at the day and hour and all and have a, have a lotto or something, but that's not a prediction. But Jesus made it plain. He gave us 70 signs, maybe more, that point to his return 
and the day of the Lord. So he wants us to know the season. There's no doubt about it. And if we can just get close to that season and back up seven years, we'll know how close we are to the return of the Lord. Amen? I hope I didn't go too fast for you. I hope you can understand that. If not, you can get the... It's going to be on Facebook. It's going to be on YouTube. It's going to be on Spotify. Uh, if you don't have any of those modern technology things, we'll give you a CD. I don't think we can come up with a tape, though. Get you a CD. I don't know how far back you are, but a CD would be about as best we can go. Hallelujah. This is what I was talking about the other night, Wednesday night, when I said that, or maybe it was when Pastors Flint and Brenda were here. Uh, and I'm still gleaning from that message. I'm still listening to that message. Uh, but anyway, uh, I said that I had a sense of urgency, but I, I, you know, it seems like I've always had a sense of urgency, but not like I have it now. This is time to get God's house in order. This should be the first place that we get in order, amen? And get our life right with God. You may think you have more time than you actually have. You might have less than what you think. And that shouldn't be the reason we get right with God anyway. Oh, Jesus is coming back. I better straighten up. You might go out there today and get hit by a beer truck. And to make it bad, it could be a light beer truck. You never know how much time you got. Audience, this goes for you too. I don't know who you are, where you are. Uh, what your status is, what you know about the Lord, what you don't know about the Lord. But I'm telling you, the only thing that's going to send you to hell is the rejection of Jesus Christ. And you don't want to do that. So let's say a prayer. You know, I won't have you repeat it after me, but if you can agree with this prayer in your heart, God will accept that. So Father, we thank you and we praise you. Lord, you didn't leave us comfortless. You sent us the Holy Ghost to comfort us, to help us, and to guide us. And one of the things that he does is he leads us and guides us into all truth. And part of that truth is the day of the Lord and your second coming. And Lord, we know the rapture is signless, but you give us plenty of signs to point to your second coming, to point to the day of the Lord. And we thank you, Lord, that we're not going to be on the earth during this terrible time called the tribulation period. Because we believe in being raptured before that. We believe that that is the time of Jacob's trouble. That is the time when Israel is judged. That uh, we've already been judged. And, and we've been found guilty. But we accepted Jesus Christ. And we pleaded the blood. And you accepted that as our, as our penalty, Lord. And... So we're right with you. We're in right standing with you because of the blood. Hallelujah. So, Lord, we know we're not going to be here for that period of time. But we want to be ready for the rapture. We want to be ready, rapture, uh, rapture ready. And I don't mean that we want to be ready to leave here. I mean that we want to be at a place where we know we've done everything that we could possibly do to enhance and grow and bring more fruit into the kingdom of God. And we need to do it with a sense of urgency. It's like Joseph Morris says, the two-minute warning has sounded. 
and we don't slow down or rest on our laurels in the last two minutes of the game. We give it everything that we have, and we run harder, and we run faster, and we stay up longer, and we do more than we did throughout the rest of the time that we were here in the church. And this is the time we're in right now. So, Lord, I pray for everyone that's out there on the internet, everybody that's in this church right now, everybody that's within the sound of my voice, God, I pray that if they're not right with you in their heart, that they'll make the correction and they'll make, make it right with you in their hearts, Lord. So, Father, if there be one out there right now that's not right with you, I ask that he just look to heaven and he says, Jesus, I'm sorry for my sins. Please forgive me. I believe you're the son of God. I believe you rose from the dead on the third day for my justification. I accept you as my Lord and Savior. And from this day out, I will do the best I can to serve you. If you prayed that prayer and meant it in your heart, then you're born again and you're saved right now. And Lord, if there be one out there that's, that's confessed you before and they know they're saved, but they know... They're not right. They're not living for you right now, God. Uh, I just ask them to say this prayer. Say, I repent. And I'm sorry I drifted away. I come back to you, Lord, like the prodigal son of old. And I know that you received me just like he did with open arms. And you'll kill the fatted calf. And you'll give me a robe and a ring. And there'll be a great celebration in heaven because one return. So, Lord, that's our focus today is just get people right with you. Get people into the kingdom of God that they'll be a, a part of that first harvest of souls, that first fruits unto you. We thank you and we praise you for it. We believe that everybody that said that prayer is receiving exactly what they prayed right now in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. If you prayed that prayer, tell somebody. Tell somebody, I accepted the Lord today. Tell somebody, I came back to the Lord today. That would be your testimony. God bless you. We love you. We'll see you Wednesday. This concludes this message. Thank you for listening. We pray that it's been a blessing to you. For more information about FFC or its ministries, please contact the church office. God bless you, and remember, Jesus is Lord.